Lord, now let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, today we are in the tenth and final part of a series we started in January called Radicalis, which is that Latin word that means to grow deep, to have deep roots. This last week we're going to be talking about radical endurance. It's like learning how to hang in there, what to do when the going gets tough. In fact, if I were to give this, title, this sermon a subtitle of some kind, I would probably label it how to run like champs when we feel like chumps. In fact, if you look at your message outline, it's towards the back of your worship folder, it actually says that. How to run like a champ when you feel like a chump. Now, as we begin, I want you to just think about your spiritual life for a moment. Be honest in the quietness of your mind. Be honest with yourself about your spiritual life. I mean, how close are you really to God? I mean, is it something that works really well for you all the time or whatever? And then maybe somewhere on your outline, you take a pen or a pencil, and I'd like to have you circle either champ or chump. You know, what do you think about your spiritual condition right now? Are you a champ or a chump? And I did it on my own sheet. Now, I've got to tell you that if you circled the word champ, uh, you're going to get a little bit of a free pass today. Maybe this message isn't going to mean much to you. But if you circled chump, like I did, or some of you were too chicken to even do it, but if you circled chump like I did, hopefully today's message will be a source of encouragement for you. Now, you probably wonder why I would circle chump when it comes to my spiritual life. Well, it has something to do with... Uh, the scripture reading you heard this morning. Part of the reason is because I understand what the Bible said about that great cloud of witnesses that Matt read to us before. There's this great cloud of witnesses up in heaven who are watching us as we run this life of faith. Let me read this beginning to you again from verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to our life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Now, one of the things I remember teaching this last week about Bible study in Haiti was the fact that sometimes we need to get a mental picture of this scripture. It's like the Lord is my shepherd. To picture yourself as a, a little sheep and Jesus there, you know, when you hear about you know, things like makes me lie down by uh, quiet waters, what that looks like. But here it says, we are surrounded by this great crowd of witnesses, and we're running this race. Can you get that picture? You're running a race of faith, and there's this great cloud of witnesses in heaven who are looking down, and they are watching us run. That image conjures up our spiritual ancestors, and if you're not sure who those people are, back up one chapter in Hebrews, chapter 11, and reread that section, that hall of faith. This great crowd is watching our life of faith as we run. They're cheering us on. Come on, folks, keep going, keep running. You're going to get to the end. Now, I've got to tell you, that really pumps up and that really excites 
Some people, some of the time. You know, you're sitting there, man, man, I've got to excel in my spiritual journey because everybody's cheering me on. Everybody's clapping as I'm running this, this, this race of faith. But I'm going to be real honest with you this morning. For me, sometimes when I think about that, it kind of shuts me down a little bit. Now, for the most part, I think I'm pretty good. Uh, you know, it's me and Jesus doing life together. But there are times when I think about my spiritual ancestors, that heavenly cloud of witnesses who are watching me live out my life of faith. I'm not so sure I can live up to their expectations. I'm not sure I'm the man. I mean, I've sat on a platform already in a foreign country where somebody said we are privileged to have a world-renowned evangelist with us today. Now, I thought Billy Graham had showed up, but they were talking about me, and I know that I'm not a world-renowned anything. I didn't really feel like a champion. I don't always feel like a champion worthy of all of the attention that this passage seems to indicate as part of my faith journey. And guess what? They're not just watching your pastor. Wayne, that great group of people are watching you run your life of faith. Now, if that pumps you up, God bless you, Wayne. But if sometimes you're a little like me, you kind of think, yeah, you got chump circled. There you go. Let me tell you about some of these people who are watching you run. You know about most of them. You know, there's Moses. I mean, Moses freed the entire nation of Israel. Moses parted the Red Sea with God's help. You got Noah. I mean, for goodness sake, the guy built an ark. I mean, he saved the animals and his family. You got Rahab, even though she was a prostitute, hid the spies when they came into Jericho. You got Gideon. Gideon led an army of 300 people against 135,000 Midianites. Here's a good one for you. Abraham fathered a child at age 100. Didn't that give you the willies? Some of you that are heading towards that age? Makes you feel any better. His wife is in her 90s. I mean, you read Hebrews 11, friend. It lists a lot more that God used to do some pretty incredible stuff. So how can I consider myself to be a spiritual champion when sometimes I feel more like a spiritual chump? Well, thanks be to God, the Word of God gives us some clues. I'm going to share a couple of them with you this morning. Here's the very first thing. <clears throat> the first thing we need is a realistic picture of the road ahead. You've got to have a good view of what a spiritual life is really like. Now, one of the reasons that I sometimes feel like a spiritual chump is because I have got a misguided picture of what I think my spiritual journey ought to look like. Now, many of us think, okay, if I've got faith in Jesus... Every day I should have this kind of spiritual, perfect trajectory where every day I should just go higher and higher and higher in perfection so I get closer and closer to Jesus each and every day. But if you've been a Christ follower for, let's say, uh, an hour, you realize that's not very realistic. Your spiritual life is highs 
and lows, it's mountaintops, it's valleys, it's good days, it's bad days. That's the way the spiritual life looks. It's kind of like the stock market. There's going to be black Mondays every once in a while. But like people who are in the stock market, they don't always just bail out. And so our spiritual life, even though it kind of goes up and down, and some days we wonder, you know, what happened to God? I mean, why does the devil seem like he has control of me? You know, I don't bail out. I practice what I call radical endurance. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. The tough reach out to something even tougher. You trust in the program. Now, I know that over the uh, next 5, 10, 20 years, if I'm in the stock market and I realize the bottom drops out from time to time, I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to trust it. And the same way with our spiritual life. Things go kind of tough. Well, I know Jesus is still with me. I'm going to hang in there. And as a result, I'm going to get closer to him. Now, to be real honest with you, this might surprise some of you, might scare some of you. The road ahead is not even as clean as up and down. It's not as easy as good days, bad days. You know, because if you knew there were ups and downs or good days and bad days, you could start to project that you're about due for a bad one or a good one, and you could prepare a little bit better. But living the Christian life, being a disciple of Jesus, is not that simple. If your life is anything like mine, I take three steps forward, and then it seems like I stagger five steps back. I go eight steps to the left, and then I go six steps to the right. I, I, it's like watching a drunk man trying to get from here to there. It is, and this is what I'm going to call, discipleship, the life of a Christian, is just one squiggly journey. There's a good theological word, isn't it? Squiggly. You know what squiggly is? I mean, if you think your journey of faith is supposed to look clean, guess what? You're going to feel like a spiritual chump almost every day. Here's, what, here's a great theological concept I'm going to give you today. I should make t-shirts for us. Embrace the squiggle. That's what we need to do. Embrace the squiggle. I mean, that's the journey you and I are on. See, when we think it's supposed to be something different than it really is, it sets us up to feel less of a champion and more of a chump. If, if I think my life's got to be better and better and better and better and better and better every day, I'm setting myself up. Now, just to, just to make sure that you don't feel like you're the only one here, uh, besides Wayne and myself, who are spiritual chumps, if you don't think you know, that only Wayne and I have this squiggly life existence, I want to read a few words from the Apostle Paul. I mean, Apostle Paul wrote more than half of the New Testament, wrote more of it, a lot of it from prison. And if there's ever a guy you'd say has it all together, who is a hero of faith, it ought to be Paul. Here's what Paul said. I don't really understand myself. I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. And then he said, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this wicked body? Those are the words of Paul, the great hero of faith. His life was nothing but a giant squiggle. And by the way, Paul wasn't the only one in the Bible who had a squiggly life existence. Those other people I mentioned to you before from Hebrews chapter 11, 
Oh, let me go back and remind you about the squiggly life some of those folks had. I mean, Moses, sure, he, he delivered the Israelites when God called him. But when God called him, what is he doing? Hiding out in the desert. He was a fugitive hiding because he had murdered somebody. I mean, Noah, yeah, he, he built the ark. But one of the first things he did after he got off the ark was get drunk and pass out naked in his tent. Now, we don't often know that story because when we talk about Noah in Sunday school, you know, it doesn't make a very good story to teach three or four or five-year-olds. Come on, kids, gather around. Here's Noah, here's the ark, now he's naked. I mean, that's not the kind of story we want to teach in Sunday school. In fact, we have kind of dry-cleaned the Bible. We have edited the lives of our Bible heroes to be user-friendly. The truth is, these folks had a lot of squiggles along the way. Remember before Gideon, you know, Mr. 300 against 135,000? For lack of a better word, he was kind of a wimp. He was a sissy. I mean, most Bible scholars believe that Gideon was in hiding for his life when God came because he was afraid of what's going to happen. And yet when the angel of the Lord, and by the way, when you see angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the word is Malach Yahweh. It is the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. So when this angel of the Lord, Jesus, comes to call on him, how does he address Gideon? He calls him a mighty warrior. Can you imagine that? A guy in hiding, fearing for his life. The angel of the Lord calls him mighty warrior. What did Gideon say? <laughs> I always remember this television show. What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> this is like, what you talking about, God? <laughs> what you talking about calling me mighty warrior? And then he goes on to really wimp out. He says, I'm no mighty warrior. I'm just, I'm, I'm, my family is the weakest one in the whole group of 12, and, and I'm the weakest one in the bottom tribe. He wanted nothing to do with what God wanted. I got to tell you, time after time, you study your Bible, God sees stuff in people that most people don't see in themselves. Why is that? It's because we're kind of focusing on the squiggle. And we, we're always trying to figure out how to straighten out the squiggles of our life. But friends, here's the deal. Here's the deal. It starts all the way back in the book of Genesis. Some people think there's no grace in, in, the, in the Old Testament. Well, those people have never read the Bible. Grace starts way back in Genesis, goes all the way through. The deal for us is this. Jesus knows your journey. He knows every twist and turn and up and down and high and low and mountaintop and valley. He knows every squiggle you have ever gone through. And guess what? He knows how to fix it. I mean, he knew Rahab's story. He knew she was a prostitute. He could, he could unwrap that one. I mean, he knew Gideon's story, a, a, you know, a little chicken little hiding from God. He could take care of that. So if you want to run like a champion instead of a chump, you need to get a realistic picture of what your life is really like and what God can still do in spite of your squiggly life. Here's the second thing. We need to replace performance and pressure with forgiveness and freedom. Uh, I, you know, when I wrote that, I thought to myself, man, Barry, you could preach all year on that statement. There's so much stuff there. I mean, that statement, replacing performance and pressure with forgiveness and freedom, 
is what it really means to be a Christ follower. That's the heart of what we believe. What does a Christian believe? A Christian believes that through Jesus, you can replace performance and pressure with forgiveness and freedom. I'm always amazed when I, I, I teach down at Louisiana State Prison in Angola how these guys have got so much scripture memorized. I mean, I'll say something like, well, I remember this passage. It's in Lamentations chapter 5. And they, they all shout back, his mercies are new every morning. <laughs> they know that one. Or sometimes I'll say, well, there's some place where I know that God says this, and they'll shout out, 1 John 3, 1. They got a lot of memory. Guess what? I found people like that in Haiti. I found a little boy that was about five years old who told me what the Bible passage was. I was impressed. How much scripture do you have committed to memory? Oh, I can't memorize anything. Only 800 cell phone numbers. Only 1,600 email addresses. Only the recipe for my world championship chili. Man, some people ought to be smote in the head with a rock. You can memorize whatever you want to. Well, if you haven't memorized anything for a while, I kind of got off the track here. Let me give you two possibilities. Colossians 1.22 is one of them. It's talking about the role of God, the role of Jesus. It says, now he has reconciled himself to you. I mean, God straightened out the squiggle back to you. Through the death of Jesus in his physical body, as a result, he's brought you back into his presence, and now you are holy and blameless. You're no longer a chump. You're a champion without a single fault. Here's my the theological statement of the day. We may think we're squiggly, but when we stand in front of Jesus, we're faultless. See, the Bible says that's because of the death of Jesus. His sacrifice, his death, his resurrection enables us, despite all of our squiggliness, if there's such a word, to stand before God holy and pure. That's the power of the message of Jesus. That's the whole power of what Christianity is all about. But that's not it. That's not all. He also offers us freedom. You want to memorize another Bible verse? Look at Galatians 5.1. Christ has truly set us free. I mean, if you didn't memorize any more than that, that's great right there. But that passage goes on to say, so make sure you stay free and don't get tied up again to the slavery of sin. Now, before the times of Jesus, when the scribes, the Pharisees, and all of those people were kind of in charge, they wanted to be different in the eyes of the rest of the community. They, so they performed a certain number of rituals. And they had a whole bunch of rules. Now, you think Ten Commandments is bad. The Pharisees came up with 613 of them. 613 laws, like how you cut your hair, how you ate, how you dressed. I mean, rules that were show you how to live so that you would be different from everybody else around you. Now, the Bible says Jesus comes along and said, I'm the fulfillment of the law. So when we put our trust in Jesus, what happens? He fulfills all of those rules, all of those regulations, and suddenly we are free. That's why I have friends in prison who say, Doc, we're freer inside the walls of this place than a lot of people who live outside as so-called free men or free women because they know they've been set free in Jesus. And then, then the writer here says, but, and don't fall back into it. Don't get all tangled up in that stuff again. Now, I've got to tell you, when I, when I start feeling like a spiritual chump, 
I can pretty much put my finger on the reason why. It's when I start focusing my attention on what I would call a performance-based faith. I start asking myself questions like, man, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing enough good things? I, I mean, I did something really rotten yesterday. I better do something really good today to kind of balance out the scales. Now, I've got to tell you, there are some good rituals in Christianity. We call them spiritual disciplines. But we don't do them as a law. We, we do them out of freedom. We do them out of our thankfulness for the forgiveness we receive. For example, I read my Bible. I read my Bible each and every day, not because I'm a pastor, not because I have to, but I read this every day because I want to do it. I mean, the freedom and the forgiveness I've experienced compels me to do it. I can't not read this. I serve in ministry. I mean, I've had people say, why are you going to Haiti? Why don't you save your money and spend it here? I've got to get that bad thought out of my mind a minute. I'll tell you why I do it. I, I, don't, I don't differentiate ministry, whether it's standing here and serving as your pastor or whether I'm in Haiti preaching to other people. It doesn't make a difference. where. It's ministry. It's doing something for other people in the name of Jesus. I do this not because I'm trying to earn extra brownie points in heaven with God someday. I serve because I've been given the gift of forgiveness and freedom. And it's like, how can I not do it? You know, Nancy and I give financially to the church. It's not because, you know, God is sitting up there in heaven saying, well, I'm glad Barry, Barry and Nancy put that dollar in the plate last week because we were a little short up here in heaven. You know, we give because of the freedom and the forgiveness we receive. I mean, how could we not support the Lord's work? Because, quite honestly, we want more and more people to know about this freedom. We want more and more people to know about this forgiveness. Now, if you feel like a spiritual chump today, it may be because you don't have a realistic picture of the road ahead of you. It may be because you're focusing on pressure and religious performance instead of remembering the forgiveness and the freedom that Jesus offers. One last thing. If you want to run like a champion, look to Christ continually. Look to Christ continually. It talks about running the race. That's what Matt read to you before. But it also, if you go to the next verse, it says, how do we run this race? We keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, or the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. So he said, we keep our eyes on Jesus. See, when I focus my attention on this great cloud of witnesses, when I look at the other people around me, I can get intimidated. I don't know if I'm going to live up to their expectations. But I know that even if there's a great crowd of witnesses, cloud of witnesses in heaven, there's one more person up there cheering me on. And to be real honest, it's the only one watching that really matters. Jesus is watching. Jesus is cheering us on. A number of years ago, somebody gave me a poster. Actually, I thought about this morning. My wife will probably remind me later. It was a clock. <laughs> and uh, it had the Footprints poem on it. You know the Footprints poem? i got to be really honest with you. I thought it was pretty dorky. I thought it was pretty cheesy at the time. If you've never read the poem, you ought to hunt up, because I'm going to butcher it now as I just kind of tell you about it. But it's a story about a guy who has a dream, and in the dream, he and Jesus are walking down the beach, and 
as they walk down the beach, there's all these moments of his life come flashing by. And there are two sets of footprints there in the sand, and after a while, the man noticed that every once in a while, there was only one set of footprints. That kind of bothered him. Uh, he wondered why, and so he turns to the Lord and he says, you know, Father, I noticed that in, in the darkest hours, in the toughest time of my life, there's only one set of footprints. Why would you leave me when I needed you the most? And in that poem, it says God looked at him and said, I didn't leave you in your time of need. When there's only one set of footprints, that's when I was carrying you. Now, here's the truth. It might be a cheesy poster. But it comes, in, in retrospect to me, with one of the most powerful images, one of the most powerful messages, one of the most powerful truths you can get. It says, Jesus is not up in heaven from a distance cheering you on and watching. Jesus is not even at the finish line going, come on, you can do it, you can do it. Jesus is walking with you in this faith journey, hand in hand. You know, when you feel like you can't make it anymore, when you feel you got to cash in your chips, when we're, we're in our ultimate state of chumpiness, if there's such a word, it's in those moments that Jesus picks us up, carries us, until we can start running again on our own. See, the Bible says, that's the other cool thing. We go to Genesis. Uh, the Bible says that God spoke the world into existence. He did not do that with you. He did not say, let there be a you and there was a you. You were handcrafted. It says, he knit you together in your mother's womb. That's how important you are to him. Uh, he's always with you, cheering you on, carrying you. And that ought to make you feel like a spiritual champion because he sees stuff in you that you don't see in yourself. One last thing, kind of a thought for the day or a thought for the week. Jesus is in the business of turning chumps into champs. In fact, I can help you turn yourself from a chump into a champ just this easy if you've got a pen. All you need to do is finish up that little circle on the top of that U and put a little tail on it. <laughs> kind of like how kids turn Fs into As and try to pass, them, pass mom and dad. But you can change that. That's what Jesus does. He, he's in the business of changing chumps to champs. You don't have to strive to be a champion. He already sees you as one. He paid the price on the cross because your championship material. You're worth the price. Makes me feel good to know that that's how God sees me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good all the time, and all the time you are good. You love us all the time. You believe in us all the time. You're with us all the time. May we begin to understand and grasp it and embrace it, and may we begin to live it and learn to run like champions. In the name of the true champion, Jesus, we pray. Amen.